0: It was an especially brutal winter during Canada's Klondike Gold Rush. Jack London didn't strike gold, but he did find what he needed to write The Call of the
1: Wild. He was really the first kind of celebrity author that there'd ever been that became rich and famous.
0: Richard Grant follows the frozen footsteps of Jack London in Dawson City in the Yukon. Dave Seminara travels the world in search of curiosities and to meet unusual people
2: worth writing home about. And I thought, this is really interesting, a whole village full of witches and wizards. <laughs> i got to see this. Portugal's curvy streets are often accented by colorful
0: ceramic tiles, but there's a new art form creating a buzz in Lisbon.
3: Ugly, dilapidated, gray, dark buildings transformed into beautiful murals. Guides from
0: Lisbon tell us what to look for in the city's architecture. Plus, we get a close-up look at Mona Lisa at the Louvre in Paris. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. Richard Grant explores Dawson City in the Yukon in the winter. He follows the trail of author Jack London when he tried his luck in the Klondike more than 120 years ago. And travel writer Dave Seminar tells us about the unusual people he met while exploring the margins of the Americas. That's coming up in just a bit. Let's start today's Travel with Rick Steves in Portugal. The architecture and the art of Portugal helps to tell the story of that small country squeezed between Spain and the Atlantic Ocean. You can wander through museums showcasing classical and romantic paintings, two styles with the largest impact on Portuguese painters or you can take in the beautiful blue azulejo tiles that ornament many of Portugal's buildings. To learn more about Portugal's art and architecture, we're joined in our studio by two Portuguese guides, Cristina Duarte and Rafael Pereira. Cristina and Rafael, thanks for joining us. Obrigada. Great to be here, Rick. Cristina, so often to understand the art of a country, you need to understand its economy. There's money behind the art. How does money shape the art and the architecture of Portugal?
4: When you have money, you won't be surrounded by beautiful things. Actually, is universal. Everybody wants to be surrounded by beautiful things. The thing is that you don't afford it many times. And uh, when you afford them, you have them. And so how did
0: Portugal get how, so much money then? Because they have great art from 500 years ago.
4: Yes. Well, it has a combination of two major factors. The 1500s with the discoveries period that allowed us to have for the first time money enough for our trade with many places in the world. So automatically the royalty had money, the nobility had money and the church had money. And the coincidence is that you have money and you have also religion behind it. So, which is being a major Catholic country and thinking that you want to give your best and your beauty to your... your to glorify God. Exactly, to glorify God. So, uh, there were two kinds of ways of spending that money in art, which was the private, and that will be for palaces that nobody will see, and to God in churches And I consider that public art.
0: (laughs) So, Rafael, you have this money coming in from the trade. In fact, the churches were actually nicknamed Spice Churches. How, How does the spice tie into the building of churches?
3: Well, when Portugal arrived to places like India and China and we started to bring all of these new products back to Portugal, they revolutionized Portugal. They revolutionized our economy, and from there on, the society started to change and that is one of the interesting aspects of art is that it reflects the other dimensions of society so the spices they were uh, they were a major factor take for example the jeronimos monastery that began to be built precisely with the money that came from the spices which spices were these that were so valuable so you had uh, pepper you had cinnamon
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, and many others. And, Christina, why would people spend so much money for pepper and cinnamon?
4: Uh, To preserve, mostly is to preserve. uh, For refrigeration. Also to uh, pigments of uh, any kind for uh, linen or... uh, Oh, for uh, dyeing. For 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 dyeing, yes.
3: It was something exotic. It was different. People never seen it before. So imagine the first time you are smelling coffee, or you're tasting pepper, or you're smelling cinnamon. Imagine the impact that you had. Imagine how it sparked your imagination. So the wealthy
0: people would want this. It would be titillating for them.
3: Now, you mentioned the uh, monastery at
0: Hieronymus in Belém, uh, just outside of Lisbon, Uh, B-E-L-E-M, I believe, Belém. That was Manuelan-style architecture. What is Manuelan? Where does that word come from?
3: So uh, the Manuelan style is named after our King Manuel, Actually, the name was given only in the 19th century, during the Romantic period, but King Manuel he was one of the most important kings during our age of exploration. So he ruled from like the time of Columbus until 1520. He or began to like rule that. in 1495 and then until mm-hmm. uh, the, the 1520s. In the 19th century, they figured out that we had uh, several monuments throughout Portugal that shared the same characteristics. So what are the characteristics? If you look at the front
0: of a church, what will you see? And you go, oh, that's Manuelin from 1520. Mm-hmm.
3: So the Manuelan is late Gothic style. So you have the basic structure of the Gothic. And then over that basic structure of the Gothic, you have a very specific decoration. You have, for example, maritime motifs. You have the strong heraldic of Manuel, especially with the armillary sphere, So the the coat of arms of the royal family and then themes from the sea
0: because the money came from the sea?
3: Exactly, like the rope. The rope, yeah. The rope with a knot is a very, very important uh, symbol of the Manuel line.
0: So that's something to remember when we go to Portugal as Manuelan art, that sort of the um, connection of Gothic and Renaissance and the sea trade and a celebration, uniquely Portuguese, from the reign of King Manuel. Cristina, we also think of tiles when we think of Portugal, these beautiful blue tiles. Tell us uh, the name and, and and very briefly how they make these tiles and what they mean to the Portuguese. Azulejo.
4: Azulejo. Okay. For many people that speak Latin languages, they think that azulejo comes from blue, but it actually it is a coincidence. The word itself comes from Al Zuleh, that means a square of vitrified ceramic. So it is a technique, an ancient technique that came from the Persians and uh, went uh, throughout uh, till the western part of Europe and arrived to us uh, on around the twelfth to the thirteenth century. Although in the 16th century, uh, a Italian found out a technique called majolica and the technique was basically instead of uh, starting to paint, and for the last firing with glaze, we right now do it the other way around. We do the glaze first, we paint overall, and then at last we fire the the tile. So it becomes more resistant. The colors, they will change throughout what it is in vogue, and also the motives. And when we see blue and white, we know that it is the Chinese influence of the Chinese Okay, so China, China. was trendy, yes.
0: and then they would decorate, and I remember even the beautiful church in Porto The exterior is beautiful, azulejo tiles. Exactly The train station in Porto, the the palace in Sintra. Rafael, there's a a single museum, I think, where you can see the best tiles. Tell us if we want to see the best tiles in Portugal. Where do we go? Yes,
3: uh, the National Tile Museum. It is uh, just 10 minutes drive from the city center in Lisbon. Mm -hmm. It is actually in an old convent from the early 1500s. It has inside of museum this amazing church that you can see while visiting the museum, and you basically can just follow the evolution of tiles throughout the history of Portugal. And keep in mind that we have been producing it and innovating with it and introducing our originality for 500 years. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're talking Portugal's art and
0: architecture with Cristina Duarte and Rafael Pereira. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And we have an email from Patrick in Long Beach. Patrick writes, Get thee to the Gulbenkian Gardens and Fine Art Museum in Lisbon. If you're heading to Belém, check out the Horse Carriage Museum. Portugal is one of the power countries that colonized and collected the riches and is not known particularly for world-class art museums, but I would say the Gulbenkian really is a first-class museum and even better, it has a relaxing and accessible feel that makes it easy and so much more enjoyable. Christina, this is very interesting that uh, Patrick recommends both the Golbenkian Museum with its wonderful gardens and the Coach Museum out at the palace. First of all, the Coach Museum is the best Coach Museum I've seen anywhere in Europe.
4: It is the best in, you, in the world because we have uh, the best collection, but the best best preserved collection in the world. The tendons for centuries and centuries was that on the 20th century you had electrical or, I mean, power, other kind of power vehicles. You get rid of that. You dismantled that. The coaches, because they were pieces of artwork, so you will sell it by glass, you will sell it by the wood, you will sell it by the paintings. And thank
0: goodness the greatest coaches of the royal family and so on in Portugal survived, and they're like works of art on four wheels. It's an amazing story, and you'll see that when you go out to the Belem uh, Monastery and and the Monument to the Discoverers and so on. Also, we have an email from Ward in Winston-Salem, and uh, that's in North Carolina. And Ward writes, what's the best way to know and appreciate Lisbon's growing street art scene? So, Raphael, that's a great question because in Lisbon, I'm very impressed by just, you walk down the street and you see beautiful art. What's the best way to appreciate the, the crazy modern street art in Lisbon?
3: You know, street art is quite meaningful for me because when I became a tour guide, it was precisely the moment in time when the city hall was reaching out to the graffiti communities and gave them specific places where they could actually go and perform their art. And it was an initiative done by the city hall with the objective of fighting vandalism by promoting the best quality street art. And the city benefits from it because you have ugly, dilapidated, gray, dark buildings transformed into beautiful murals. Okay, so we'll put that on our list. We've got the Gobenkin, we've got the beautiful tiles, and we've got the
0: street art, and we've got the in architecture. You know, I'd like both of you just to close with your favorite artistic moment, as you, as a tour guide, would share with one of your visitors. Christina, where would you take us?
4: To the Gobenkin Museum and put people in front of the Rembrandt portrait of the old man. It's something that makes me almost cry when I look to that old man. Okay, so for
0: Portuguese art, you're going for the greatest European art that happens to be in Lisbon. Rafael?
3: Well, I'm going to choose something that is not Portugal, but is universal. So, in the mountainous northeast of Portugal, you have prehistorical rock art. So, imagine the valley of this small river, which is actually a tributary of the Douro River. You have the biggest concentration of open-air rock art in the world. So you go there and you see these carvings in the stone. They depict mountain goats. They depict fish. They depict horses. And this is long before there was a Portugal. How, how old this is this? This was 25,000 years ago. And why I think it's so magical is because you're looking at this art and you feel this tension inside of you because on one hand it's something that is very distant it's something that is very primitive it's something that tells you a story when humans were struggling when they were very exposed to nature but on the other hand although it's so distant you look at it and you see that it was a human hand that did it so that takes experiencing art to a completely different level
0: 25,000 years ago, 50 times as far back as Columbus and Vasco da Gama.
3: It transcends our nationality, but it gives you an experience of what it is to be human. Fantastic.
0: Rafael Pereira, Cristina Duarte, thank you so much for giving us a fascinating look at the art and the architecture of your beautiful country portrait. obrigada. Thank Thank you, Rick. You can hear me describe my first encounter with Portugal's soulful Fado music. It's in a program extra from my book, For the Love of Europe, that you'll find this week at ricksteves.com radio. That's also where Raphael tells us more about the Gulbenkian Museum in Lisbon. Crazy travels from South America to the Yukon are just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. When a travel writer visits your town, you might find yourself immortalized in an article or book they write describing their travels. Dave Seminara has taken his family to seek curiosities and meet memorable people across the United States and even deep into Latin America. He publishes these travel souvenirs in his books. A few years ago, Dave released Bed, Breakfasts, and Drunken Threats about their travels in what he calls the margins of Europe. He's with us now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us about his travels in the Americas, which he includes in some three dozen entries in his book Breakfast with Polygamists, Dispatches from the Margins of the Americas. Dave, welcome back to Travel with Rick Steves. Thanks for having me back on the show, Rick. This book is just a fun collection of how much fun you can have on the road. Tell us, um, why did you write this book?
2: Well, yeah, it's a follow-up to my first book, Rick, which was called uh, Bed, Breakfast, and Drunken Threats, and that was a collection of... uh, of travel stories from the margins of Europe, unusual and offbeat places. And this one is a collection of 38 stories, most of them pretty fun, from 10 different countries around the Americas. And it's lots of travel that went into this. What was your process?
0: You know, you're, you're visiting with Navajo Medicine Man, you're visiting with uh, people into witchcraft in Nicaragua. Did you go there intending to write articles on these topics, or did you just kind of follow the serendipity?
2: A mixture of both, Rick. I mean, my general travel philosophy is that I'm guided by curiosity. So when I travel, a lot of times I start with the destination. Like, okay, I know I'm going to, let's say, Nicaragua. And then I try to figure out, okay, well, what is it about that place or the culture that I might find that might be interesting or offbeat there? Or I I combine my interest. If I have an interest in a specific topic and that country has something there, then I'll pursue that as a sort of quest when I get there. But then other times, it starts uh, with just, I want to go somewhere for a specific purpose and the destination is later. Like, for example, I wanted to travel in the footsteps of Kurt Cobain uh, in your home state of Washington. So there, it wasn't so much about the destination, it was about learning more about, about yeah. Kurt Cobain.
0: Yeah, I noticed that chapter and I thought, well, you, you must have had an agenda for that. You went there and you have certain places to visit, but you also wrote about Medellin in Colombia and there's so many dimensions of that that you could just stumble onto. When you were in Colombia... Dave, did you ever encounter this um, sort of sport where they get together, drink beer, and it's like throwing horseshoes at little explosive caps?
2: Yeah, Tejo,
0: Tejo. I went into it. It's a so Tejo. much fun. It's amazing if you think about it. It's sort of like a barn where you've got these mud walls on an angle with explosive caps, and just like people throw horseshoes, you throw these. Hockey puck size um, metal um, missiles, and if they hit the cap, it explodes, and it's just fun, and it's free as long as you're drinking beer. Tell us about that sort of scene when you're at a Tejo uh, <laughs> center in uh, Colombia, and it's a it's a dimension of that culture that you just stumble onto, and you go, Yeah, I'm glad I'm in Colombia.
2: Obviously, you travel all the time with your kids, Rick. You know that some activities are good for kids and others aren't. And Tejo is played, you know, in a lot of bars and such. So I wondered whether my kids would like it or not. But my kids absolutely love Tejo. And the thing is, when you get the puck, um, when you hit your target, it makes a huge pop. Like I mean, it's actually yeah. the noise of it is a little bit jarring. But my kids love that. So, I mean, Tejo is a, is a great family activity, and it is a window into the culture. It's very social, too, because you meet other people who are playing, and you join on teams, and it's really fun.
0: Describe the energy and the noise and, and the fun when you're surrounded by that. I, I have a hard time describing it because it is so
2: cool. Well, you're going to see. I mean, it's sort of like, imagine, uh, like beanbags, for example. If you're playing beanbags, that's about the distance that you're throwing these sort of puck. I, I, there's a proper term that I, I don't know off the puck top of my head. Puck is good but a, a, a cross between pucks, a horseshoe and a puck, yeah. Yeah. You're throwing them from about the same distance that you'd throw, um, you know, horseshoes or if you're playing beanbags. So you're, you're from that distance, and... When you hit your target, as I said, you hear this tremendous pop. It sounds like a firecracker basically.
0: And if you don't, you hear this wonderful little thud as your puck embeds yeah. in the mud and then you gotta go and pull it out of the mud like you just messed up and you're determined to do it again and make that explosion.
2: It's an anti climax, but like the energy and the excitement, especially for kids, when you hit the target and you hear that big pop. It's it's really just it's a very social game, as you said, and it's fun.
0: When you're on the road, all sorts of amazing things stumble right into your viewfinder, and you've got to put the camera down and actually get in there and become a temporary local. Tell us about Breakfast with Polygamists. How did that work
2: its way into your book? When I was in Utah, obviously, you want to visit the national uh, parks in Utah, and there's five of them, I believe. And um, the two that I was focused on were Canyonlands and Arches. But I'd heard also that there was an unusual community that I read about in an article in the Denver Post, which was written years ago, about a community called Rockland Ranch. And it's a community of about, let's say, 20 or 30 families, and their homes are blasted into an enormous rock. And they're essentially sort of cave homes, and most of the people who live in this community are polygamous. And I thought, this is someplace that I would like to find. And so you know i contacted the writer of the article it was the article which i read was in the denver post and i asked her well how did you find this family and how did you meet them and it turned out that she had been introduced to this to one of the families in the community by a woman who is sort of a, a plural marriage advocate based in salt lake city who is trying to sort of normalize polygamy and so I contacted that woman. I said, you know, I'm very sincere. I'm, I just would like to really find out about this lifestyle and to, to visit this community. And would you mind introducing me to someone in the family? And she said, sure, hmm. no problem. And so um, I set a date. I set an appointment. And uh, it was actually a morning appointment. And I did bring muffins for them. and we I shared breakfast with a polygamous family that lives inside this beautiful cave home. And at the time, they had thirteen children, so when I walked up out in front of the house, I saw literally thirteen children's bikes parked in front of it and you had you had muffins with the husband and both of his wives. The husband no, actually, what happened was it was actually one of his wives, one of the husband and and the second wife were actually out of town, so it was unusual that he, you know he allowed me to to be there of course the, the sort of very traditional families, and so the husband had to approve of all of this so Dave. That's a good
0: example of the kind of people you can meet on the road. And in that case, you had to make a point to meet these people. If you go to the Tejo place in Columbia, you're going to meet people whether you like it or not, because there's things exploding all around you and you're drinking beer. Talk about some more people you met. You had some great experiences in Kentucky, for example.
2: Kentucky, Rosine. Kentucky is uh, you know moving you know moving <laughs> across the country here. I, I'm really into bluegrass music and apple traditional Appalachian music, and I would heard about this amazing place called Rocine, Kentucky, which is home to, I believe, only about 40 people. It's just a little hamlet about an hour south of Owensboro. And it's really the home of bluegrass music because Bill Monroe, who is really the pioneer of bluegrass music, who's credited with really inventing bluegrass music, was born there and raised there. And uh, every Friday night, um, except for January and February when it's a little too cold, basically from March through Christmas – They have this incredible jam at this uh, this barn, at this old barn in this tiny little hamlet in Kentucky, and I read about this. And, um, you know, I went to this place, and I made so many friends there, and uh, they invited my children on stage to sing, and it's just – it's an incredible experience. It's an incredible community, and people in this area, I swear it seems like they all live to be about 90 or 100 Mm -hmm. because – people who senior citizens from all over the area and people of all ages really but you see people who are 85 90 years mm. old dancing on the dance floor and getting up on stage and playing music and it's an incredible um really like rich part of the culture of this region and it's something that's totally free they pass the hat you know for donations just to have you know some heat space heaters and stuff like that in the barn but it's basically just an organic and free experience. It's completely not touristed at all.
0: And you call it a bluegrass high in Kentucky. I love bluegrass music when I'm traveling, and to see that would be a highlight of a trip, I would think.
2: It is, absolutely. And you know, and anybody can go to this, uh, to this event, too. It usually starts up like around 6 o'clock every Friday evening. And actually, sometimes uh, they get really well-known people who come and play mm-hmm. at this jam. Most of the time, though, it's just local people who get up and play their music. And the incredible thing is how talented they are. I mean, you hear these people singing and playing the banjo and you're like why isn't this person famous why don't right. they have a recording contract they're good they're amazingly good
0: this is travel with rick steves we're talking with travel writer dave seminara he's compiled dozens of his travel essays into his latest book breakfast with polygonists his website is daveseminara.com. dave you write about visiting with the navajo medicine man tell us a little bit about that
2: Sure. Well, I'm interested in traditional medicines generally. I've had some health problems in my life. And like a lot of, I think, Americans, you get frustrated with traditional doctors in the U.S. and you you can't help but wonder, well, what about traditional medicines? What did people do 50 or 100 or 200 years ago when they were Mm -hmm. sick? And so when I travel to a lot of places, there's several stories in this book of me trying to meet traditional healers and traditional medicine men and even witches in Nicaragua and in Belize. But this, in this particular case, I was visiting Monument Valley, which is just an, an incredible part of the, of the world in the Four Corners region. And I was in the Navajo Reservation, and I'd heard about Navajo medicine men and how that on the Navajo Reservation that many people don't trust traditional doctors, and they still go to traditional Navajo medicine men. So I wanted to meet one. And um, I spoke to the person that that owned the uh, bed and breakfast that I was staying at and asked if this was, you know, possible to meet someone. And, of course, the first question they asked was, well, are you willing to pay? And, you know, generally, of course, you know, as a traveler, you like to have experiences that aren't commercial where you're not making a transaction like, okay, let me pay someone. But he said that usually medicine, you know, Navajo medicine men, they consider themselves just like doctors. When you go to the doctor, you pay Mm -hmm. a copay of $40. So why shouldn't you pay something for the medicine men? So I said, okay. I am willing to pay. How much? <laughs> how much does he want? And uh, the answer was fifty bucks. And I said, "Okay, it's worth it to meet a Navajo medicine man for fifty bucks. It's worth an hour of his time to see what he would say." Uh, you know, and the meeting was arranged with this gentleman.
0: And you went in not as a voyeur, but you went in as a as a yeah.
2: person with a health concern that you wanted
0: to get his expertise.
2: I have a couple of autoimmune diseases. One of them is MS, and I was really curious to know. What he would say about how do you treat someone, how would a Navajo who believes in medicine man who has MS, what would you do to someone like that? How would you treat me? Did you gain a respect for that or did it just seem like hocus pocus? I wouldn't say it felt like hocus pocus, Rick, but it was a fascinating experience for one thing because the Navajo medicine man, he spoke Navajo, which is a very interesting language which I had never heard before. It's very melodic. And his nephew translated for him. He spoke some English, but really it was quite broken English. And we were inside uh, this Native American uh, Hogan, they call it, which is sort of like an adobe sort of structure, out really in the middle of nowhere. And there was, a you know, a crackling fire that they had. It was wintertime that I was there. So and hearing this uh, medicine man speak in his language inside this Hogan in this beautiful part of the country, it was sort of, you know, the, the ambiance of it was I felt respect for him. He had a, a medicine kit. And the tradition that he said that they would do is he said that they would, you know, perform this sort of ceremony for me and that he was going to travel to all of these different areas to find special plants and herbs and natural medicines. And he said that they would perform a ceremony for me and I would try all of these natural medicines and such if I was willing to go with the ceremony. That'd be another 400 bucks. (laughs) Well, that's the thing, of course, is that (laughs) it's going to cost extra for the ceremony i wasn 't really willing to go that far to be honest with you, I wanted to know how would you treat someone, but I, I felt like no i 'm not going to pay for the actual ceremony <laughs> so right. i didn 't spring for the ceremony to be honest, but i did I did feel like he sincerely believed it, and people there sincerely believed it and Sometimes the key to getting better is just believing that you 're getting better
0: well that that opens up a, a whole lot of options from a wellness point of view, and uh, yeah that 's not hocus pocus uh, there are non conventional approaches to wellness.
2: I will say, though, that the, the, the witches that I saw, I went to a, a special village so we're in, in uh, Nicaragua, in Nicaragua, now Nicaragua called Dioromo. Tell us about that. This is a village. It's about an hour um, south of Granada, which Granada is one of the beautiful colonial towns in Nicaragua that many tourists go to. However, Dioromo is a place that is not in any guidebook whatsoever. But I'd heard about it. I'd heard that it's a place where there's about 15 or 20 witches. It's a small village but it's well-known for brujos, which brujo is the word for witch in, in Spanish. And I thought, this is really interesting, a whole a whole village full of witches and wizards. <laughs> i got to see this. So I actually recruited a couple of guys from the hotel. And this was great because usually people at a hotel, they either want to make money off of you or give you very commercial recommendations. But these guys told me about this village. And they said, we'd actually like to go with you because we've heard about it. We've never been there ourselves. And they didn't charge me any money either. Two guys from the hotel came with me. And we went on a chicken bus, which anyone who's traveled in, in Latin America knows what these things are. They're sort of ramshackle old school buses. Mm-hmm. And this chicken bus was actually called El Brujo, which is the witch, because it goes to Diaroma, which is the witch's village. And there's a whole little cottage industry in this village, and it's mostly not it's mostly local people who consult these witches too. It's not tourists, very few tourists. And you go there, you get off the chicken bus in the main square of this village, and there's all of these little uh these sort of three wheeled I think they're called Sidomos. And they will take you to a witch, the witch of your choice, basically. And I met with both a witch and a wizard. And um, the wizard wanted to give me a special bath and charge me the equivalent of, I think, $217 or something like that. And he said that he could cure male pattern baldness, uh, impotence. He said that he could make ugly people seem more attractive. He said that you know, for men who lose their wives – I asked him, what sort of customers do you usually get? What sort of clients? And he said, well, sometimes I get men – whose wives have left them, and I can make the wife come back and things of that nature. So I did feel like they were you know, basically scamming people. However, I could see that people there actually believed in it, just the same way people here might go for tarot card readings or right. consult psychics. I felt like it was the same sort of deal. So I had more respect for the Navajo medicine men then than the, the, the witches in, in Dioroma, but I loved the adventure of going to this little village and meeting these witches and wizards. I mean, it was priceless. Dave Seminar writes about the people he meets in his travels around the margins of the
0: Americas in his book Breakfast with Polygamists. He's also written Footsteps of Federer to describe his pilgrimage to the home turf in Switzerland of the famous tennis player Roger Federer. Dave's newest collection follows travelers from the Arctic to Niihau. It's called Mad Travelers, a tale of wanderlust, greed, and the quest to reach the ends of the earth. We have links to Dave's work with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio of of all of your visits this way Dave as you've had mm-hmm. your own health concerns that you're kind of exploring where did you really feel like oh I'm I've learned something I'm 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 better for
2: that You mean as far as the medicine men and the natural healing goes yeah well I think the, the I met a guy named Harry Guy which is a wonderful name but there's a guy named Harry Guy who runs a, a business I believe it was called jungle medicines or jungle remedies in a small town in Belize is he and a wizard no he's an actually just a Harry uh, Guy He's just a hairy guy who has natural remedies. And what he calls himself is a bush doctor. So bush doctors are, they're not witches at all, but basically they're natural. They they believe in natural medicine. They find what they call are bush remedies. So they go out into the jungle and they found natu- natural potions. Right. And this guy had everything. He, he treats um, cancer. He has potions for cancer. He has potions for erectile dysfunction. He has potions for HIV and all of these other things. Right. And he gave me his whole spiel, and I thought, I did feel like it was hocus-pocus. However, he pulled out an entire album he had of testimonials hmm. from lots of different people, and they were in English because, you know, they speak English in and Belize, and, and several of them were from Americans. And he had all of these people saying, you can't believe how much better I am and so on and right. so forth. And these were not; they were clearly like handwritten letters. They were not things that somebody could fake. I wrote that story several years ago and I also posted a video about Harry Guy on YouTube. Rick, amazingly, this is probably seven years ago now. Mm-hmm. Every month I still get emails from people who have either read the story or seen the video on YouTube and say, Hey, can you give me Harry Guy's email address? Because I would like to try his potion for this, that or the other thing. But it's about the adventure. What it's not to me just the what is the potion or what's in the potion or whatever, but it's about the adventure of finding these people because they're not yeah, on TripAdvisor.
0: So you could have called your book not Breakfast with Polygamist," but Cocktails
2: with Harry Guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but my first book was called Bed, Breakfast, and Drunken Threats, and I wanted to keep the breakfast theme.
0: There you go. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Dave Seminara. His book is Breakfast with Polygamist," and it's a lot more than that. Dave, thanks so much for joining us.
2: My pleasure. Thank you, Rick.
0: Less than a third of the would-be prospectors who dreamed of getting rich in the Klondike Gold Rush in the far northwest of Canada would actually make it that far. And 1897 turned out to be an especially harsh winter, where even the strongest whiskey would freeze solid at 50 below. One of the men that toughed it out was a plucky 21-year-old from San Francisco named Jack London. Dawson City in the Yukon Territory would prove to be fertile ground for his career as a writer, and the setting for his famous Call of the Wild. Up next, Richard Grant explores Jack London's Yukon on Travel with Rick Steves. Jack London is famed for his classic novel, Call of the Wild. It's an amazing story inspired by a gold digger's experience suffering through the Klondike gold rush in the frigid Yukon way up in Canada's Arctic back in the 1890s. Richard Grant found the actual experience of Jack London, who wrote... Call of the Wild to be as inspiring as the romanticized story that he wrote. And Richard traveled. He actually relived much of Jack London's experience to write an article for the Smithsonian Magazine in November of 2019. Richard joins us today to share the experience, the amazing true adventures of Jack London in the wild. Richard, thanks for joining us. Hey there. Call of the Wild Describe for us Jack London's experience. This young, sort of, very rough traveller, writer, was
1: inspired to go up to the Yukon. Yeah, so in 1897, uh, Jack London is 21 years old, and these two steamships come, one docks in Seattle, one docks in San Francisco, and miners come down the gangplanks with three tonnes of gold from the Klondike in northwest Canada, and this wild gold rush begins. And Jack London is desperate to get up there, but he doesn't have any money. Uh, but fortunately, his brother-in-law, who's 60 years old, gets the gold fever, the, the clondicitis, and decides to take Jack along for muscle and experience. By the time he was 21, Jack London had been an oyster pirate. He had sailed across the Pacific at the age of 17 on a seal hunting ship, he'd hoboed from coast to coast on freight trains. He had been to prison. He'd become a confirmed socialist. He was a pretty tough character by the age of 21.
0: He's a guy I'd want with me if I was going up to Alaska. Something exactly, exactly, like a tough, exactly. tough character.
1: Yeah. And he, he loved to read books, and he had a very vague idea that maybe one day he might want to try his hand at writing So along with all their equipment, uh, he threw in um, some Milton and some Darwin and a few other books. And then they sailed up to Alaska, and then they had to get all their gear over the uh, glaciated Alaskan mountains. And uh, just to begin their their journey to the Klondike, I think 100,000 people set out for the Klondike, but only 30,000 made it, and Jack London was in the first wave.
0: You know the famous, uh, what was that pass that people go up back and forth, the Chilkoot yeah, Chil- Pass. Ch- exactly. And, yeah. you know, reading your article, I, I didn't realize that these stampeders, you know, 100,000 people, they had tons of gear. They had to go up and down 20 or 30 times, this Chilkoot Pass. I look at it, I have a tough time with a backpack doing it once. They had to right. go up and down and up and down to get their ton of gear and provisions over the pass to go from Juneau to Dawson City.
1: Right. I mean, Jack London himself had 2,000 pounds of gear. So he would put 100 pounds on his back and walk walk for a mile, dump it, walk back, and then get a, another 100 pounds on his back. He'd have to do that, what, 20 times? And
0: then you, you wrote about how Jack was like – he was the guy that could run the rapids in a raft. Other people would say, no way. I'm not going to that whitewater with all my gear. And they'd ridge it around – but Jack would say, no, nah, let's do it. And he'd hop in with his, with his brother-in-law and he'd, <laughs> he'd take it through the rapids, way up there.
1: Right, in a boat that they built by cutting down spruce trees and <laughs> sawing up the boards and nailing together.
0: Okay, and then he got to the Klondike and he wrote about it like it was 40 days uh, living in a refrigerator and uh, give us the call of the wild. And then you decided to go there and retrace his steps. What was that like?
1: Well, I'd never been to the Yukon before, and I I did not hump 2,000 pounds of gear over the mountains and make <laughs> my own boat. I flew into Dawson City, where he spent part of the winter of 1897. So you get there, you stay in a B&B so, right on the river? So I stayed in this hotel um, where they serve a sour toe cocktail. I don't know if you've ever come across one of those, but it's a it's a pickled, mummified human toe in a shot of liquor, and you have to... The toe has to touch your lips, and then you get a certificate. So anyway, I had a few sour toe cocktails. You can go and see Jack London's cabin where he spent the winter.
0: So wait a minute. First of all, this is a human toe in a cocktail. Is this because with gangrene and the, and the freezing weather, a lot of people would lose their toes, and some entrepreneurial bartender would say, let's keep it?
1: Yeah, the, the tradition began with a, with a frostbitten toe. and hmm. I think somebody like shoved it in a drink, and it, it became a thing. It was so cold your spit would turn to ice before it hit the snow. Yeah, that's a famous Jack London story where that that image is used, and it was so cold that even the strongest whiskey would freeze solid up in the Yukon in the winter.
0: So you experienced the same Yukon that Jack London did. You just had a, a cozy place to go and drink your uh, human toe cocktail.
1: Well, that's, I just I just trod some of the same ground.
0: What's Dawson City like today? This was the, the uh, gold rush town that just erupted yeah. in the 1890s. What, what's it like today?
1: I loved it. I would recommend it, anyone to go to Dawson City. It's, it's got these kind of raised wooden sidewalks and a lot of old buildings that date from the gold rush time. You've also got a lot of placer miners still pulling gold out of the Klondike. So people still go there to, to literally pan for gold? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, some of them use dredges and other machinery, and some of them use gold pans, and some of them use both. Yeah, I spent a day with a, a miner who was convinced he, had, he was sitting on the biggest claim in the Klondike, but he didn't have enough money to hire the machinery to get down to where he was sure the gold was.
0: So we've got to remember and, and put things in perspective the Yukon is like bigger than California with about 30 or 35,000 people, and a big city right. would be Dawson City, which is like 1,500 people.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, it, there's, there's a whole lot of wild country in the Yukon. But Dawson City is um, a lot of kind of free-spirited people there. I met, I met artists and filmmakers and indigenous people, and it's a kind of place where you can live at your own, kind of do what you want, and nobody's going to really judge you for it.
0: Richard Grant is telling us about his deep freeze adventure in Dawson City in Canada's Yukon Territory. It's where he went to learn about the exploits of Jack London, who chronicled the hardships of the Klondike Gold Rush in The Call of the Wild and White Fang, the books that would make him famous. Richard also explores America's racial history and the realities of the New South, as found in one curious town he got to know along the Mississippi. That book is called The Deepest South of All, True Stories from Natchez, Mississippi. There's more on his website, richardgrant.us. Richard, when you're in Dawson City today, is it just cringeworthy, tacky tourism with saloons and swinging gates and, you know, bartenders that look like they're coming right out of a movie or, or is there a sense of real history there?
1: No, it's, it's, it's kind of low key. Um, I really liked it. It, it was mm-hmm. not, I didn't find it tacky at all. I mean, there's a, you know, there's a few little kind of souvenir shops and it kind of trades uh-huh. on its, on the fact that it was the capital of the Yukon, of the Klondike gold rush. But no, I found, it, I found it quite a genuine, down-to-earth place. I met lots of good people, had a lot of good conversations. Yeah, I would, I would go back in a heartbeat. So you went there as a
0: writer. Jack London yeah. went there as a writer. You're a rugged, adventurous guy. Probably not on the scale of Jack London, but Absolutely rugged not. and adventurous nevertheless. As a writer, uh, you, you, you learned a little bit about what was in Jack London's head when he was there. What did you learn, and what were some great moments for you as a writer?
1: Well, actually, what, I mean, the, one of the great moments was actually not in Dawson City in the Yukon. I, I went to the Huntington Library in L.A. and went through Jack London's papers and found the handwritten journal that he started keeping in the Yukon. I mean, he was really going there to get rich. He just had a vague idea that he might be a writer. Well, the
0: irony is he might not have got rich with the gold, but he, within three years of his experience, he was the most well-paid short story writer in the United States at the age of 24.
1: Exactly. Yeah, Yukon was where he decided to really become a writer, and and Yukon gave him his subject material. It's like Call of the Wild. Uh, you know, is about a, a dog named Buck. Well, that actual dog was living in Dawson City. His name was Jack. He was a hundred and forty pound dog, and Jack London had a real affinity with all animals, but dogs in particular. And uh, he mined that. <laughs> he mined his experiences in Yukon sure for. For fiction,
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Richard Grant about Jack London's trail in the Yukon, the author of Call of the Wild and how he was inspired. So, Richard, you went to Dawson City, but, of course, Dawson City was the hub, and the gold miners would fan out from there and, and choose their little patch of riverbank, I suppose, where they thought they might get rich. Talk about the Yukon River and just living there. You spent some time there. Uh, Jack London spent 40 days there. How tough is it in the summer? How tough was it in the winter when Jack was there?
1: Okay, so when Jack went down to Dawson City to file a claim, I think it was in October, and the river was... You know, the Yukon River is the third biggest river in North America after the Mississippi and the Mackenzie, but it usually freezes solid sometime in October. And then to get back to his claim, I think it was 80 miles from Dawson City... Jack London went back along the frozen Yukon River uh, just sleeping under a pile of blankets next to a fire at night and the weather records and his own recollections say that it was about 70 below zero when he was doing that Mm. then he spent the winter in this 12 by 8 I think cabin and they would keep a fire burning in the middle of the cabin in a stove in in a metal stove but you could, meat was still frozen on a shelf inside the cabin with the fire going. And they spent this very tough winter kind of sleeping on spruce boughs and trying to thaw the ground to mine for gold and not really finding any.
0: I mean, just think about that minute. for Let's say 40, 50 degrees below zero, you know, you're going to dig the ground for gold. No, you got to thaw it first before you dig for it. You're right, thirsty, you right. want some water, you got to take your hatchet out and chop it out of the river and then melt it. That is brutal.
1: Yeah, I met a woman in, in Dawson City and she had bought up an old, I think it was an old brothel and she was turning it into um, a kind of hotel and bed and breakfast, I think. But she lived on the other side of the Dawson River. She was a single mom and in the middle of the winter, you know, 70, 80 below, she would strap her little kids into a sled and then she had a dog team and she would sled dog across the frozen river and then start working on this old brothel.
0: So there is that culture there today, people that just enjoy letting dogs pull them around on a frozen river.
1: Yeah. Being so cold
0: when you spit, the, the spit turns to ice before it hits I got, the snow.
1: I got roundly mocked um, by a bunch of women in Dawson City because I, I suggested in my story that uh, 70 below zero was really cold. And they were like, that's nothing.
0: You know… I can't imagine it now, but I cannot imagine it in a day when you could not find refuge in a place with with some heat. And for him to live 40 days and 40 nights in a cabin with an ice floor is just mind-boggling. And he was just in his early 20s and he became the most famous American short story writer of his age.
1: Yeah, he was really the first kind of celebrity author that there would ever been that became rich and famous. And once he started making money, he lived a very grand life, built a huge mansion for himself, and sailed around the world on his on his own boat, and was you know in and out of the headlines all the time.
0: And but when he was forty years old, he had spent his life and died of alcoholism.
1: Yeah, died of kidney disease that was kind of um, made worse by alcohol, and also his refusal to eat anything that wasn't uh, game meat. He just he was convinced that he had a natural affinity with wolves. He liked to eat just rare meat, uh, rare ducks, and apparently that was really hard on his kidneys too. He used to call himself <laughs> the Wolf. I think.
0: Have you uh, read the novel or, or seen the movie since you got back? And it makes the Call of the Wild a little bit of a different story if you know a little more about the backstory.
1: Yeah, no, I have. I've, I mean, I read the book while I was up there, sit, sitting in my hotel in Dawson City. I say I really enjoyed it. You know, after talking
0: with you, I think I'm going to enjoy looking at that and just think about the man who made that possible with his adventurous spirit. And Richard Grant, thank you for your adventurous spirit to to follow in the tracks of Jack London and give us uh, a better understanding of today's Call of the Wild. All right. Always great to be on the show, Rick. Thanks, Richard. Take care. We'll talk again.
5: Whispers of the north The river and the shore In a land that tested Eskimos Ten thousand years before Whispers of my heart Tracks of animals I will leave my footprints there to lie beneath the snow And we
0: can ride away We can fly all day And we can fly away Our next stop takes us to Paris to meet a legendary celebrity. She's the most famous woman in the world, instantly recognizable, Thousands of people travel for miles just to get a glimpse of her. She is, of course, Mona Lisa. Here to talk with me about this famous painting by Leonardo da Vinci is my friend and co-author, Jean Openshaw. Bonjour. Hey, Jean. Mona Lisa has such a mysterious appeal.
5: Well, yeah, her image is burned into everybody's mind. All anyone has to do is close their eyes and they can see the thing. Mona always draws a paparazzi crowd, so picture it. You're at the Louvre. You're in this, this huge room, mobbed with hundreds of tourists. Suddenly there it is, a tiny painting behind bulletproof glass. You want to get closer, but the crowds are too thick. So the key to unlocking the mystery of Mona Lisa is... I know. Slow, slow down. down. Yes. Take your time. Make your way slowly to the front. And soon... Ah, your eyes lock on Timona's and suddenly... You're in her world. You're 500 years ago. Yes. It's like you're in a hazy summer day. There's a beautiful long-haired woman. She's sitting on a balcony. She rests her arm lightly on the armrest. She turns her body toward you, looks directly at you with... Those eyes, very intense. Mm. She smiles. Or does she? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just you, her, and a sweeping landscape in the distance. So finally, your patience has been rewarded, and you've entered the mysterious realm of Mona Lisa.
0: Jean, it seems that although the first glance of Mona Lisa is often pretty straightforward, it's just like a portrait, there's actually a lot going on there. You can look deeper. You can appreciate the layers of mystery.
5: Yeah, first is that it actually is a portrait. It's a real person, and it looks like a real person. Uh, Scholars think her name was Lisa del Giocondo. She was the wife of a wealthy Florentine uh, merchant. But other scholars have other theories. Some people even think it was Leonardo himself. It's a fascinating story, really. I mean, it was Leonardo's personal favorite painting, wasn't it? It was. He, of course, was from Florence, from Italian, but he took it to France, worked for the King of France. Francois I made it the centerpiece of his royal collection. Hmm. Then his successor, Louis XIV, took it to Versailles. Napoleon even hung it in his own bedroom. So she's been in a lot of bedrooms. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and then it was stolen, wasn't it? It was stolen. It was, years was ago? like like about a century ago.
0: It was stolen that made it even more famous. Headlines but all around the world. To me, what's most impressive it's the one piece of art that Leonardo kept in his possession until the very end, till he died. Yes, he worked on it until he died. You know, it kind of encapsulates
5: all of his genius. It's got the pyramid-shaped body. It's He used oil
0: painting, which was very innovative at the time. And what was that? He had this process for showing depth in a, in a subtle way.
5: They call it sfumato, yeah. So, like, if you think of that landscape behind Mona Lisa, it seems endless and hazy. And even Mona's smile is enigmatic because the corners of her mouth are hazy themselves you can't really see is she smiling is she frowning you don't really know
0: her mood nothing happens accidentally with leonardo i think that mystery was painted in there intentionally
5: well whatever leonardo did have in mind we'll never know he tweaked it for years and when he finally died i think it was in 1519 only then was the painting done finished or not leaving us with the enduring mystery of mona Gene, for centuries, this simple painting
0: has, has really held the
5: world in its spell. Yeah, it's been used by you know, TV advertisers to sell everything from perfume to pizza. And today it's in the
0: Louvre, and it's just, you, you can't miss it. It's yeah. just,
5: <laughs> the, the mobs are right there. With all those sweaty people around her, it's the only painting you can actually hear. Gene,
0: it's been fun riffing on Culture Review. It's always a good reminder that a little art in history can add a whole new dimension to your travels. Thanks. Thank you.
4: Are you warm? Are you real Mona Lisa?
1: Or just a cold and lonely lovely work of art? Travel
0: with Rick
5: Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Kaz Mora Hall, and Donna Bardsley
0: at Rick Steves
5: Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Website uploads are by Andrew Wakeling and Sherry Quirt. Special thanks to our colleagues at WUSF Tampa and KUAT Tucson for their help this week. Find out more about our guests and listen to a podcast
0: version of the show at ricksteves.com slash radio. My public television miniseries, Rick Steves' Art of Europe, takes you on an exciting sweep through the entire awe-inspiring story of European art history in six hours. Watch the series from the Parthenon to Picasso on your local station or stream it on PBS Passport or at ricksteves.com.